Hey, Culture Hackers, back with another episode here with Terry Traspasio. And this is something I've been seeing a trend of, this idea of don't follow your passion. Several authors talk about this, um, Scott Galloway, Cal Newport with Deep Work, about that it's not about your passion. It's it's about all these other things about what, um, well, I'll let her get into it. It's it's an interesting counter trend. We talk about the great resignation, about um, creating and designing great experiences, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's Terry. Yes, there is the whole great resignation. As you and I know, that's concentrated in a few industries where people are really leaving. And it's places like hospitality, healthcare, where people have been not paid well, not respected oh, yeah. for the work. And now they're like, wait a minute. So it's not like, oh no, what are we going to do with all these creative professionals who are up and quitting? Like most of them are not necessarily quitting their jobs. But what this has done for us now, what's happening in the culture as we reimagine how we live, how we work, and what the work means is how are we spending our time? Because since we're not, most of us anyway, a lot of people are back in offices, but a lot of people aren't and have not and will not return to life as it was. And so now it's not, well, my commute and this and that. Now it's just time. Mm -hmm. It all sort of blended together. So how are you spending your time? And I think that question is leading people to ask themselves some really big questions. Uh, Even though the book is called Unfollow Your Passion, I don't know if that hits on what you're thinking, but that's my gut is that I kind of lucked out in terms of the timing. And it, it seems to be addressing a need I didn't know it would need. I didn't know it would be addressing right now. Mm. Mm. And, and what would, how, would you, how would you encapsulate that need? Like, what would you, what would you say? The need is, the need? is now, if people are saying, well, guess what? Now I'm realizing I don't want to do this, or I don't know why I'm doing this. Then they go, well, then what? And what our culture says is, well, you should really, this is the time, you know, you only live once and this is it. And if anything, there's this pressing cultural urgency to then pick the thing that you really wanted to do. Well, for a lot of people who were doing their jobs, it's not that they were all totally miserable. A lot of people were, but it's not like, well, now I'm going to finally quit and be a what? This finally, now I'm going to be, I think is kind of tricky because I don't know that everyone has the next thing they totally know what they're going to be. I don't even know what I'm going to be. I don't think you know what you want to be. Mm-hmm. I think we have to get rid of this binary of now I'm going to do what I love because everything besides my passion is stuff I hate. That's not what life is. Right. So would you say it's, it, 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 is there a contrast to who would it be? Like the Gary V approach of, <laughs> of like getting- The Gary V approach of like, anything. Like, like what, what's, what's the voice of follow your passion that this contrasts with? It says that, well, there are some assumptions when we hear that we should just follow our passion, that we have to be somehow as individuals culturally significant, that I have to be the person, the standout. I have to make a name for myself, that we have to go big or go home, that we have to be uh, uncomfortable to do it, that this is going to moment we're going to make it big. What does that even mean? You know, I write in the book about my sister, Lori, who happens to be blessed with an amazing singing voice, just not a normal singing voice that popped out of her when she was 14. And she was like, oh, I'm a singer now and I love doing it. And she spent a lot of time getting better at it and really good. But never once was she like, oh, I'm just going to do this for a living. In fact, people encouraged her, invited her. They said, well, maybe you could do this. You could understudy Cosette on Broadway. She's like, I'm so flattered, but I, I, there's nothing in me that wants to go 
Mm-hmm. Uh, to be Cosette on Broadway. She's like, that's cool, but that's not the life I want. And still to this day, now she's in her forties. She still has an amazing voice. She does not make a living from her singing. She never wanted to. She said, if she did that, she would grow to resent it. And so she has a job at a pharma company doing work that she says, I'm passionate doing it, but I wouldn't say it's my passion. I was like, well, no, it's not. She's like, no, but I'm really good at it. And it scratches an itch in my brain that I need. Mm-hmm. But do I need to be a singer to be truly fulfilled? Hell no. And the idea that there is something, I have to be something huge in order to have my life mean something. That's what's added fuel to that fire, I think, is also influencer culture and social media that we have to be this breakout star. That's not a new idea, but everyone now thinks they have to do that. I think that's incredible pressure. Mm -hmm. Well, it also sounds like it's an incredible pressure on an individual in the sense that there's this very much this individual culture that's developed your, your profile, your, your, your presence is on all these, right? It's like this me, 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 the filters, how do I look? Um, it seems like it's gone away from what would be groups or communities or teams and that kind of thing. Have you seen that as a trend? Oh gosh. I mean, you saying it is yes, makes it even more clear because you you see the culture in such a sharp way. You have a kind of perspective that I don't have. Um, but yes, have we ever been anything but though? It's always been, especially in our culture, in the US, right? Very, uh, not just in the US, but Western culture, like this power of the individual. And that's even more so, right? Team is not necessarily what drives us. And yet every company, interestingly, all of their mission statements are about team when really individuals want to be seen and recognized. And how do we reconcile that need for companies to have teams that love to work together and get along? How do we reconcile that with this idea that we're supposed to also be a, some kind of secret breakout star with a zillion you know, hits on our TikTok channel? <laughs> right, right. Which, by the way, what I love about that, about the whole TikTok thing, which I'm ba- taking baby steps into, is that what it's done is shown how broad and common great talent is. Mm-hmm. There are lots of comics on there, as I'm sure you've seen. Lots of people who are wonderful singers. This isn't so rare as just people who get a spot on a network TV show or something. The, if anything, it's shown us that there's so much talent everywhere that people can be enjoying. And I do like that about TikTok, that you can get an audience from doing something that you just thought you did and you didn't know was special. I love that. But what it does in terms of pressuring us to make a living from it is something different. Mm. Got it. Got it. So what would you say, because the, the book is, is called Unfollow Your Passion, right? But what, how does it address unfollow your passions, plural, in the sense of, I'll bring this home just, just to myself. Yeah, and, please you know, do. Give like, me an example. Um, because to me, the, 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 the thing I, I oftentimes feel like in my head, I'm, I'm 10 different people trying to get through a security door at once and we're all stopped in the middle of it, right? I've got this idea for this and this book and this potential crypto NFT project and this client and this course I could develop. Oh, and these next three books that I can do, right. um, you know, maybe that's unique to me, but it seems like the same way that it's easy to start another uh, tab on your browser and then have too many. Yes. We can do that with ideas. And, you know, especially me, somebody who's, you know, when I was, this dates me, but first getting into web <laughs> development, it would cost six figures to develop an e-commerce site. Now you need $20 on Shopify and you can sell back then. They wouldn't even let you process credit cards. Like, are you kidding? No, we had to check you out to a full background check. Right. So the, the availability, I was a film student. We were literally working with, with celluloid film, right? Right now <laughs> with, my, with my phone, I can shoot, edit and distribute 
all in one device, by the way, like at, 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 at you know, 4K. Um, so it just means that like you can have a million passions and ideas yes. and really, really even believe it's possible to do them. So how does it address if it's not just one passion, but you're dealing right. with almost too many passions? That's a really good point. And that, I love that though. I love that we, and I, and I think you in particular have a bazillion ideas, but there's a lot of people who are like, but I could do a million things. And we don't have a million hours and we certainly don't have a million hours of focused attention. And we never know as grim as it sounds when our time is up. So we use the time we have. But I, the fact that you're even saying that is a great move or shift because when someone goes, well, I have so many passions and what? You don't have to pick one to marry. You don't have to pick one to be like, well, we'll be have allegiance to this one passion or be defined by this one thing. It's that choosing or narrowing of the defining of oneself, which I think is a problem. I love when people have lots of passions. Yes, you can't follow a million things at once. But I mean, when I would say that to you is you can't work on everything. And you know what happens when you open all the tabs on your browser. It drains the battery. You become scattered. You're not able to focus. So, and this isn't maybe so much for you because I think you have a very clear understanding of the kinds of things you could do and why they would matter. But when people say, I could do this, I could do this. Looking at the world as unlimited potential is not helpful. Remember that story about choice, about the jams? And if you had four to choose from, you'd probably buy one. But if they gave you 50 jams to choose from, you'd be like, I can't pick. Like, we don't, it's actually not helpful to think. Those are the two opposites. I can do anything and I have to pick the one thing that defines me. And I know my purpose on earth. No one knows. We all showed up here. We didn't ask to be here. We have no idea what's happening. But I think that you would have to choose what you're going to work on now. What are you going to work on that would matter the most to you to create? ship, finish, or share. I think you could do lots of things, but are we going to check eight boxes and not, you know, like, what is the point of that? Right? right. So when I turn that back to you say, of course you could, I could do eight different courses on Bala, but when it comes down to it, you know, you're going to feel that your time is best spent on one of those things. Why? Because maybe one pays more and you need to make more, or maybe one uh, will reach a new audience you want to reach. Like when you ask yourself those questions, what do you come up with? Well, what uh, interestingly, what I've come up with is, like you said, how much how much control do I have over this? Do I have people to share it with? Do I have, you know, certain ideas I've realized there there are gatekeepers with those, and other ones there aren't. For example, with with a podcast, there's not a gatekeeper. I can launch that Anyone right with a crypto project. I've got. I need a developer. I need to see if that's even possible. And so the way that I've been working on some of these is just saying okay, like what level of, of how much is this even in my control? And if it's not, what I'll do is just um, like, even I, I sent a message to a developer, look, is this even possible, right? Or what's that next step for the things that are not so in my control? Um, and then separating those out because I've realized too, that when I have an idea in my head, it's perfect in my head. So in a way I don't want it to leave my head because Wait, once why? I start doing it, I'm going to see how my baby's kind of ugly, right? Like that's how it works with, with starting things. You got to see it's, it's not as great as you thought it would be in your head. But wait, tell me why, because this is very interesting. Do you, which is more important to you having the perfect idea in your head or having the less than perfect, messy, you know, slightly ugly, whatever iteration of that thing. That's something that's very unique to you, unique to someone else. But do you, would you rather have a perfect thing than see it fail or see it not turn out the way you thought? 
Um, in a, honestly, in a lot of cases, yes, because it just looks that much better in my mind. Right. So for example, for me, mm-hmm. the test that I use, if I'm going to really, really invest time and do something is I first ask myself, if I know this will fail, is it still worth it? Because if it is, it's worth the journey. And like, so when I got the, the job at Zappos, if you told me, look, in two years, you're going to completely fail. I'd say, great. Give me the job anyway. You right. know, I want to do this. I want to have that experience. Whereas a bunch of other ideas I've had, if you say, look, this is going to fail. I'd be like, really? You know, that magic crystal ball. Yep. Great. Let's, let's throw that away now, because if it fails, it's not mm-hmm. worth it to me. So that's the one test I do. And then the second test I do is I ask if this is going to take three to five times the amount of work as I think it will, is it still worth it? Oh, right. Cause then I'm thinking like, Oh no, but, uh, but the great ones, when I created a magazine, when I did the work at Zappos, you said, look, there's going to be a lot more work. I'm like, fine, bring it on. Just bring it on. And those, those two tests have really sorted out a lot of stuff for me. That's so great. I've got a great thing to think about. Would it still be worth it if it took more effort? Because we always think, well, it shouldn't be hard because, because why? Because it's perfect in our heads because it should be totally fine and easy. Nothing is. And usually most things do take that much longer than we expect. And right. so that's a, that's a great metric. I think the idea that you'd be willing to do something because of what it would do for your own growth and network and connections and, and just experience to have done it, to not have it be perfect. Now, one of the things, the study that I always go to, uh, of course, Carol Dweck is involved in it because it has to do with mindset, but it was her and a few of her colleagues and they published a study in psychological science and they wanted to understand how a fixed mindset person saw and uh, passion versus a growth mindset person. Like if a fixed mindset person says, I'm born to do one thing, my job is to figure out what that is and then everything will be easy. That's what a fixed mindset around passion is. Growth mindset says, oh, I'll try lots of things. I'll cultivate my ability in lots of areas and we'll just see. I'm being general here. This is not right out of the study, but here's what they found. The people who saw, they studied college kids as they often do. The people who saw themselves as having a fixed passion that it was predetermined were less likely to explore other interests. They were more likely to curtail those interests, in fact. And they expected that when they found that passion, it would provide boundless motivation. It would be super easy. And the minute they did encounter a challenge, they were more likely to give up, to say, oh, wrong passion. Sorry, wrong, wrong. I'll try something else. Whereas the people who didn't have a fixed mindset were more likely to stick with it. Case in point, imagine someone who wants to be a writer because I meet lots of people who want to be writers. There's a million ways to be a writer. We won't go into it. But if if you're a writer and you submit a piece or you try to do this or that and someone rejects you, if you have a fixed mindset about passion, you might go, oh, I must have had the wrong passion. Uh, I guess I shouldn't do this. I'm no good at it. Whereas someone who's like, well, we'll just keep trying is more likely going to have the career. So yeah, it's interesting. interesting. It reminds right? me for myself and for others. When, when you think about that question, like, do I keep going or do I not? I'm hitting all these obstacles. Like the story of Nike that hit so many different obstacles, you'd think the company would have been killed. And for me, I'm curious what you think about this. For me, the distinction is if I run into obstacles, does it feel like I'm literally hitting my head against a wall? Or does it feel like, oh, okay, that's interesting. How do I get around that? How do I do that? How do I, you know, how do I work with it? And if I if I get that head against the wall feeling. I, I start thinking I'm not in it for the right reasons. That's right. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, when I was shopping this book around, it wasn't this title. It was not set up the way you see it now. I had nothing about the TED Talk in it. It wasn't even a thing I'd been really thinking about. I was like, oh, I'm done with that. We're going to do something else now. And I took it around. And people are like, what did people tell me? Oh, what you're trying to do is hard. 
And I was like, yes, that's true. Publishing a book traditionally is hard. They're like, well, it's really hard. It's a really crowded marketplace. I go, yeah, show me a marketplace that isn't. And one after another, one agent after another was like, oh, well, I don't know, da, 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 da. And what that told me was, well, first of all, I'm not like a, an ingenue, like right at school. I've been writing professionally for years. So I was like, yeah, I know it's hard. Uh, next. The real thing was I'm looking for someone to represent me and represent this work. If you think this is too hard, you're not my agent and maybe you're in the wrong job. You know, like if someone really sees something and they connect with, they should be able to sell it. But what the agents were telling me was that they couldn't sell it. And I said, I need someone who can. So I had one person who said, everyone else was like, this is hard. I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. The world is a hard, sad place. And then one person wrote back and said, what else do you have? Let me see what else. Let me see what else is doing. And of course, she was the one who would end up being the agent to represent me. And then when she took it around and pitched it to all the big publishers and all of them said, no, we can't, da, da, except one. You only need one door to open. Yeah, it's the same story with 24 uh, for our work day, uh, work week. You know, it, it's amazing. It was on bestseller list for years and years and years, 23 rejections on that book. So it's a lot it of people pass. Most a, people say no. Yeah, a path to greatness. So, but if that's so, enough for you to give up, then maybe you don't want to do it. And by the way, when I'll, I'll just tell you this, when I, we did sell it, when we did have a publisher's interest, Atria Books at Simon & Schuster, they said, we really like what you have here, but here's what we think what we'll sell. And we think we need to bring in that TED Talk bar. I was like, okay, do you want to dance with them? Because then you get into the dance with them and do what you must to adjust the work. If you're so attached to how it is, you won't be able to work with anyone on it. And that was a wonderful lesson. Mm. So I see everything as both, there's the experience and the content, like speaking like a book or anything like that. So you're a speaker, you're, you're an author, you write in an entertaining way. And with the content, um, no matter what it is, we only tend to remember a small amount, right? Like I can, I can only talk to you probably for five, 10 minutes about everything I learned in four years of college. That's how little of the content right. I remember. But the experiences were great. So, so you know, I, 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 I read your writing and it's, it's an experience to enjoy. Your writing style is really enjoyable. And at the end of the day, it's just human nature that I'm not going to remember much of the content, right? So right. What, what, I'm, I'm I don't curious. even remember much of the content. Right. I wrote it, I don't so, remember. So I'll, I'll give some examples from other books and kind of give you a moment to think about what parts of the book you think people are going to really remember. So, you know, with, with a lot of these bestsellers, you think about ones like um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, original book of the tipping point. And you, you'd be able to take something in there and talk to somebody and say, Hey, you know how big ideas spread? You've got these the mavens, you got the connectors and the salespeople and here's how it works. Right. Or with four hour, uh, uh, work week, you remember the cash muse that he developed to fund his other work. You remember that he did the two different auto responders on the email and how that freed up all his time. And, you know, there's, it's a huge book and I only remember maybe three things from it. Right. right. So what would you say in this book or are, are some of those like like a portable story or some of those little nuggets yep. that people are really going to last uh, with them? I know already because the wonderful world of podcasting allows you to sort of open mic your material with lots of different right. and audiences. And I'm finding the questions hit the same notes because people feel that's a sign to me. That's listening to the market. Like what are the things people go, oh, this is this is one of the ideas. One of those that I'm very interested to hear your take on it is the concept of of me, well, picking a fight with an idea, which is what I love to do, picking a fight with the idea that we need to get out of our comfort zones. Now, being on the planet means we're going to be out of our comfort zones most of the time. But what people are responding to, and I will say the editor knew that from the start, she said, this chapter is going to matter. We need to move it up to the front of the book. It's yes, you can stay in your comfort zone. And it sounds like, oh my God, am I getting a free pass? I don't have to do hard things. 
nah, you're going to do hard things, but I'm changing the goal. Of course, I don't sit home and go, I'm never going to try anything again. I'm a, I like to consider myself a bit of a risk taker. I'll try things even if they fail, whatever. So are you, but I like to be comfortable. And you show me a human who doesn't opt for a higher thread count, for more legroom, for more opportunities, for to gravitate toward people who like them. Do you like sitting on a metal spike and hanging out with people who hate you? Probably not. But the idea that we should prioritize being uncomfortable to me does not equal growth. It does not equal, oh, that's how I'll be my best. The way, and ask Marcus Buckingham was one of the people whose work I'm studying more and more and loving it more and more. And he says, we don't actually thrive out of our comfort zones. You're gonna have to be uncomfortable lots of times in your life. But when you're comfortable is when you access your most brilliant ideas, when you can be creative and focused and productive. You don't do that when you're uncomfortable. Also, it's a kind of privilege thing, I think, to tell you. <laughs> because what it assumes is that we're comfy all the time, and we are not. It's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'll just speak out loud. I don't know what to think of it, because one right. of the things I found for myself, you know, I've got this hot sauna that's, that's great. I've got this, this sound bed that vibrates you and like Ooh. gives you a massage, right? And I find I don't use these things. The one, though, I'm using every day is the cold plunge I bought, which plunges me into like 40 degree, 50 degree water. And I'm in just, just a bit. And every time I'm like, oh, am I really going to do this? But I do it and it sucks and it's uncomfortable, but I feel incredible afterward. And so though I thought, you know, I thought this would be the one I'd avoid, like the, the uncomfortable one, but I'm actually not been using the ones that even my hot tub, I don't use that much, right? But this right. cold one I'm using every day, I would think because the the time differential between the un discomfort and comfort yes. are fast. Like I get the comfort fast. After what happens? What happens? How long are you in there? And what happens after? Just a few minutes. Like not um, 20 minutes. No, no, I'm not there yet. Maybe one day. But I just, I, I find that if I'm feeling off or weird, or I just need some energy, I go in there. And I mean, it's really freaking cold, you know, so, you know, and sometimes it's, it's really, really uncomfortable. Um, but getting out of it, it's, it's, it, it shifts the cortisol in my body, it moves things around it. Um, I feel kind of a new perspective. Sometimes I get new ideas. I love the comfort zone of the hot shower after like that feels really, it's almost like makes the hot shower so much more comfortable when I've had that discomfort. So um, yeah, but what you're saying what you though is, you do this thing that is by all, anyone who is thrown into a cold bath is going to, it's a shock. I can't even imagine. I see a lot of people doing it. I am curious about what that would be like, but I don't think of that as seeking discomfort. I, I see that as you're looking to make your comfort more comfortable because mm. what that spike does, whatever it's doing in our bodies, as you said, is creating a longer period of actual comfort. If every time you did that, you started to come out and have suicidal thoughts or not like yourself or say, be mean to people. There'd be no reason to be uncomfortable and be miserable, but you're saying that every, you appreciate things afterwards even more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, you could say that during lockdown, we all had too much time at home. And that showed us that for people who were very uncomfortable with that, that what seems like your comfort zone, like your house with all your stuff, isn't comfortable for some people. It feels mm -hmm. cramped. It feels like there's no freedom. So even people who like roller coasters, I, you'll never catch me on one, but someone who does the cut, they're not more, here's what I hate. Oh, you got to get out of your comfort zone. You have to do these hard, awful things that feel terrible because that makes me a braver, stronger person than you who's lame and doesn't do them. Someone who seeks out uh, a roller coaster 
actually finds that thrill is an area of comfort. They associate that with fun, with family, with summertime, whatever. So every time I walk around that whole route there, I still see it as an attempt to expand comfort. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. I think it's the wrong goal. Like if I told you every time, um, you know, maybe I, so let's just say this is not at all true. Cause and I have, you know, I, you know, I've done a lot of dating in my life. If every time I went on a date, I, I kind of had a horrible time, but one day I happened to be nauseous before the date. And then I went on the date and it was a great date. And I'm still in love with this person. Well, I say, well, if I ever have to date again, I'll make sure I'm nauseous every time because the discomfort of nausea obviously meant the better relationship. No, these things are not connected. Let's disconnect discomfort from the kinds of things we're actually seeking. And we're all searching for a shred of comfort in yeah. whatever way we can. Yeah. Well, go, like, connecting the idea of passion with dating, um, you know, it, 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 it seems to me in, in my experience, when I've been clear on that and I'm like, this is the thing I'm focused on. This is my passion. I'm doing that that I feel more on point. I feel more attractive. And when I'm not like, I'll just even say right now, I don't feel that attractive, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm working on a, a bunch of different things at once. Um, I'm working like, you know, people from the podcast might even know that like, I'm still working on this course to get out there and, 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 and put that out there. And so I don't feel totally on point with my passion slash passions um, I feel less attractive. I don't know if I am, so or, but you I feel yeah. literally that you're less attractive to other people. Yeah. Isn't that funny? And you know, what's ironic is that you and I will have days where we feel great and days where we feel horrible. And we pretty much look the same to everyone else all the time. We you look the so? same. Yes. I don't think anyone notices any. <laughs> well, I don't mean just physically, like really I mean energetically. I mean, energetically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Of, you know, um, I was talking to a friend who, um, who wasn't doing any day. And I said, I said, why? And he said, well, you know, women really want someone who's, who's passionate. He said, I'm just not really passionate about anything. So I don't feel like, why did he come up with that idea? That's not even true. I'm dating someone. He's not passionate about anything. <laughs> he's a cop and he, uh -huh. you know, he has a kind of a, a drudge, drudgery of a job where right now mm -hmm. he's working at a police headquarters and it's a dumb job. Like he's to sit there and hit a button or whatever. The man is not passionate. He's incredibly kind. And he's mm. funny and he's, he keeps me company it like when I'm in the hardest times and the best times, like to me, he's a wonderful partner. I don't mm. give a crap what he's passionate. Sometimes I've been like, would you like this book? Would you like this book? He's like, meh, I don't know. Like, what do you think of that movie? He's like, meh, the passion. Let's just stop telling ourselves stories about what people want. He's mm. assuming a woman wants this. And I don't have that. How do they know? They wouldn't just love you for you. Yeah. Like for being cool to be around and not being a total douche. I don't like <laughs> to hang out with people who are total douches. Sort of that. I don't need to know what your major is. It doesn't matter. I find that interesting. I've never heard that actually. That so you you're saying passion. Do you think passion in a way is opposite in some ways from joy? I mean, thinking about the word passion itself, I, th I saw the root of it is is to suffer, right? Like the passion of the Christ, like the the, the etymological. Yeah, you die for it passion to die like ride yeah, or to die, die. <laughs> um to like suffer for it right and that that maybe joy is is the attractive part of of the person as opposed no, to like, no i don't know i think <laughs> i really hate all this positive Do you? i'm really anti-toxic you know the toxic positivity thing i'm not looking for positive qualities in people i'm looking for good qualities compelling qualities uh, especially when we're looking at people that we want to spend time with. But when you said is passion, the opposite of joy, that's interesting. No one's ever said that. I've never heard anyone say that before, but I think the opposite of, of 
here's the difference. What brings you joy, you'll know in the moment you're feeling the joy. Mm-hmm. What I don't like about passion is how much suffering people do without seeming to have one. They're like, oh, I just need to find this thing I would die for. When someone tells me about how much they would die for something, I find it incredibly boring most mm-hmm. of the time. I want someone who can actually like look at stuff and talk about it, look at both sides. That's why I love talking to you. We can always look at this thing turned around. Let's stop worrying about how like passionate about something someone else is. And the example I always go back to is a board game. Board games are made up fictional world that you engage in with other people with its own rules and no one's going to get hurt probably. But when you're in the midst of a game and you're really into it, do you have to be passionate about that game to feel passion? When I'm in the midst of a, a, a real fun board game of some kind, group game, I feel passion rising in me as a quality I already have. I'm not like, well, I'm just not passionate about this game. You're a horrible party pooper is what you are if you just have passion <laughs> in every game. Like, please don't like, well, I'm only passionate about taboo. It's like, oh God, when people use it as the way I use gluten, like I can't eat things with gluten in it. I can't do anything I'm not passionate about. Well, I guess I'm not inviting you to things then. You know, I want someone who can try lots of things and see it out. And if they don't like it, that's okay too. Uh, But yeah, I, can we talk about boredom for a second though? Sure. The thing about boredom, I didn't know what my opinion was about boredom until I read a book online by an author who apparently doesn't want to be found because I tried finding him out everywhere. His name is Mark Hawkins. Apparently he doesn't exist on the planet, but he wrote a book called The Power of Boredom. And I wanted to do a chapter about boredom, I thought, because I was like, what happens when you do everything right? You think you're doing everything and then things go into the crap or like you're bored or this happens or this happens. I have all like the worst case you know, scenarios. And he changed my mind about boredom because he said, boredom is, you think we're so, uh, you know, Distract, we are so distractible. We have so many things to entertain us. We could breed out boredom. We think that we've gotten rid of boredom. We've solved the boredom problem by having things to listen to, watch, and do at all times. He says, we are actually incredibly bored because the busier we are, the less we realize how bored we are. So if you're super busy doing lots of things, there is this deep yaw at the bottom of it, this muck of the basic existential nature of nothing matters and everything's ending. And I say this because all of this, I need to be this, I need to feel this way is kind of a distraction. But what he said is boredom is not the opposite of excitement. He said, boredom is the opposite of meaning. Mm -hmm. And note that it matters if I'm going to call my book something about how to create a meaningful life. He said, if you allow things to get boring, you allow the color to drain essentially from everything that means something that's critical because when everything seems pointless and boring, that's when you can recognize what has meaning and what doesn't. Because if you've been told these things are important, but all of a sudden you're bored with them, well, now you're questioning how important they are. I so if that helps, mean, yeah. then how does one increase their boredom if, that, if, if you're saying that you helps? You allow it. You don't even increase it. We, you have to so What's an example of how you else. allow it? So I put that book down. I read it in one sitting. It's a short book. I put it down. I said, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to sit here for 10 minutes and do nothing. I've never, I don't think I've ever done that. I'm just going to sit on the couch. I'm going to stay in space. It's 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. And what happens when I do that? Most people won't allow it. And what I started to do is allow time in the middle of the day where after I get off a Zoom call or something, they are draining for everyone, right? I would go lay on the couch and just lay there and maybe sleep. Yeah, I have that life. I can do that. I can take time in the middle of the day. I think it's important because then when I rest a bit and I get up all of a sudden, I have a million ideas now. And here's a study that you will never forget. Here's something you won't forget. It's not my study. Sandy Mann, who's done a ton of research on boredom. One of the studies they did was they had three groups, a control group that did nothing. One group that had to copy the phone book onto a piece of paper, you know, just writing what's in the book. 
And another group had to read a phone book. For those of you who are younger than us, a phone book used to be where all the numbers lived. Uh, and, and the other last group had to read the phone book, just sit there and read it. And then, so they made them do that. And then they gave them an exercise, like how many uses for a paper cup? Guess who had the most creative ideas? Not the control group and not the group that had to copy the phone book, because apparently that is even kind of fun. The people who had to read the phone book had the most ideas. And that means what will we benefit from allowing some time to be fallow, to be unpassionate, uninteresting, totally boring? What rises out of the soil of that? You won't know if you don't give it a chance. <laughs> Read the, that's interesting. I've only heard that used like in filibusters where somebody I think actually once read the phone book in a government. Uh, so it, it would be interesting <laughs> what the equivalent of that is. It reminds me there was another study where people were either, they were in a left room alone. They could either do nothing or give themselves an electric shock. And most of them oh. chose to get the electric shock because they were so bored. But doesn't that show, that's not just an uncomfortable place. That's yeah. fear. There is a fear of that because it shows that maybe nothing matters. And we don't want to believe that. Like I said, full circle, we want to believe what we're doing is meaningful, important. We're passionate. We, we stand for something. The bottom of that is what if it doesn't matter? I'm not saying nothing does, but we get to create the meaning. Isn't that Willy Wonka? We are the meaning makers. We are the whatever. If we don't make our own meaning, we're letting someone else telling, what mat telling us what matters. Yeah. And that's what I think I'm most against. Don't tell me what matters. Don't tell me how I should be. Yeah. And if we don't allow some boredom, we might never find that fault line. So is that what you did? Is it basically meditation you're talking about when you're just sitting there doing nothing? See, when I do meditation, I think I'm going to do a virtuous thing. I'm going to meditate now, uh -huh. <laughs> but you're right. And I put so much noise around. I'm like, now I'm going to meditate. Am I meditating? But it kind of was meditation. I think it was a sidestep of the boredom experiment as meditation. Why do you think so few people meditate? You know, we all know it's so great. Why? allowing that space is why do people you've been to yoga classes how many people are like tear up their mat right before shavasana they're like but gotta go gotta get the shower <laughs> people don't want to lay there in the dark contemplating the meaning of their own life they'd rather just run be like i did all my downward dogs i'm done for the day that's something to think about like can you make yourself lay there yeah lie there lie there lay there yeah so one of the things i like to do um like with my book is I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll give people a technique to try and they'll say, Oh my gosh, that was, that was fantastic. And then they want to know more. Like, so for example, with mine, I, I, I tell them, one of them is, is, is to just try experiment with being on time for everything for a week, just all, earlier and just notice, just no, run an experiment and see what happens. It's amazing when we don't try to force everything into time or think that we can expand it by being late and just actually honor time and see how much more we can get done. What happens? Um, they, it, 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 it's amazing because, you know, I really learned it from Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, who was 10 years I knew him on time for everything personally and professionally. And that what I found is that it's this, uh, in culture, it's this consensus reality point because we could disagree about everything, but it's pretty hard to disagree that right now it's 1245 Pacific time. Like we can agree on that about all the things we can disagree on. Mm -hmm. Right. So if we can connect on that and everybody honors each other's time, especially within a culture, then we have a point of reality where everything else is not uh, agreed upon a lot of times. So it brings mm -hmm. people together. They act in unison. It's really like literally getting in sync is, you know, people used to sync their watches. Right. So when people act on time together, deliver on time end meetings on time, start meetings on time, things just start to work.
Um, so that's an example yes. of like one of the techniques. What 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 are things? Are there any things in your book people can without reading it can can try it? Say, oh, that's yes. so cool! I want to read more. Yes, I talk a lot about a method that I, I studied, practiced, and then trained in called the Gateless Writing Method. That started out for writers, but I use it in all the work I do with all the people I do work with, and they're not all writers. And it's the act of writing as a way not to come up with something to write down, but to write down what comes up, to use the page to access clarity and brilliance by surprise. Part of the problem of writing in our culture is that we learned it as kids. And the day you had to write something down was when a paper was due or you had to test. And so we thought committing things to the pages where you're judged and often wrong. And so I try to undo that as I had to undo it for myself so that I could write because most people are so blocked and the people who love to write are still blocked. So I have lots of exercises in the book that talk about that method, but also are geared to help you um, do that. So I will give you a prompt right now. What I would tell people to do is take five minutes, just calm down, quiet their body, sit in their body, just kind of a moment of meditation, which I do walk people through. Then set a timer for 10 minutes. And then tell yourself this prompt, which I will give you right now, which is, Think of a time you went with your gut. It doesn't have to be, there isn't, and it worked out or it didn't work out. We don't know. It's emotionally neutral. It's uh, temporally neutral. It could have been last night. It could have been when you were five. When I say that, a time you went with your gut, what rises to the surface? What weird random ass memory comes up and that you're like, I don't know why I'm thinking about that. Don't question it. Don't filter it. Write for the full 10 minutes and see what comes up. And you will be shocked. I have done it with everyone from the entire administrative team at Google to financial advisors at Wells Fargo to the to all the VPs who are women at L'Oreal. We did a workshop with them. What this does is access story and ideas in ways they didn't think were possible. Where if I say, come back tomorrow and give me a paper on that, you would have a miserable night. But I only give them 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh -huh. And it's astonishing. And you don't need to read the book. You could just go do that. But when something comes up, you're going to want to know what does it mean? And that's, that's where the book comes in. Interesting. It is, Robbie, it's fascinating. I did it with a group of people they didn't even know what they're getting into. It was like a group of 20 uh, financial advisors, which means they were very wealthy, white men over 50. That is who the room was. And I, I said to them, um, I forget what it was, a time you, oh, a time you, uh, you found out something you thought was true wasn't true. Mm. And I didn't realize that was such a loaded question. I mean, I knew it was kind of loaded, but these guys, it was 9am and they thought they were there for a marketing and branding session. And I made them do this. And then we ran around and listened to stories. When I tell you, not a dry eye. Like I was like, well, they're you know, advisors, not writers. You know, let's just see what happened. They blew me away. One guy told a story that he had never told when he came home early from a trip abroad and all of his friends were on the flight from Lockerbie that Lockerbie Scotland, the thing that blew up and obviously this horrendous, he was supposed to be on that plane. He had never written about it at all. And when he read it, he was heaving and sobbing and we're all, everyone was kind of panicking. And I said, it's fine. It is fine. He is okay. We are listening to the work. Like this is where we put attention on the work. And he was like, I've just never told that story before. It blew people's minds, but this was in him. And he was just walking around doing his thing. I'm going to a marketing session. He didn't realize what was in him. And I, we were talking about what made them leaders they are. And he said he always felt a little guilty that he survived because he felt like going home early. He just was anxious. He was done with the partying, done with being abroad. And I said, I'll call him Bob. I said, Bob, you, uh, you know, I'm not your psychologist, but looking at the work and what you shared, 
what that tells me and your other listeners here is that you're a leader who knows when it's time to go. And you knew when it was time to go. It wasn't, I'm the leader who stays with everyone, not that day. And it saved your life. So that's, but it gave insight through the work, what he'd written in order to see what he was capable of. And that is that's one of my favorite things to do. And what, what does that do, you know, just thinking from my, my corporate consultants angle, like what, what does that do for a team? Well, it depends on what we're using it for. I will use it with groups when I'm trying to help them figure out their brand messaging mm-hmm. and they want to tell me, I go, well, you know, I never ask them what makes them special because that's the quickest way to get to what makes them boring. We really love our clients. <laughs> we're really great with our team. We're really trustworthy. We're better than the other guys. I'm like, great. That's not interesting. Next. So I say, right about a time when your clients understood what you do and I'll have them write and they all write and they all tell stories. And I go, oh, now I know who you are. I'll be right back. I go home. I go to bed overnight. I come back with all of their brand messaging based on their stories. And so not just that, we do other things too, but that mm-hmm. is how I get at who someone is, is through their stories. But as a group, this, these guys are all financial advisors, do not work together, but they are part of a, a little collegiate group that shares you know, industry you know, stuff and they, they work to, you know, to enlighten each other. Mm-hmm. And that day they really did enlighten each other because they saw, they really knew each other. We knew what that guy had been through. That, and when I left the room, I was like, okay, let's take a break. Cause it was just very emotional. And people were like, what was that witchcraft? What did you just do? What just happened in there? And I was like, no one ever asked you. No one ever asked you what, what actually matters to you. What do you remember when I say this or that? So I'm really good at prompts for the right group. So I mm-hmm. do one specifically for that, but for the financial advisors groups who I've worked with, who are hire me to brand them or rename them, whatever. And any group I do this with, it changes the level of trust because something else happens in that room. I have a set of rules that were given to me through this training. We do not criticize or question each other's work. There is no questioning of the work, no criticism, no, hey, you should do this. You only point out what's working. This sounds like, oh, we're gonna be nice to each other. I'm not that nice, as you know. This is not about being nice. This is about training our reticular activating system to look for things that are strengths, to look for what's working. And it changes the tenor of the group it increases the trust and morale incredibly. And several groups have said, we kind of want to do this on our own. I was like, you can do whatever you want. We have to follow the rules because as soon as someone starts talking about or criticize something, then the trust is gone. So it's a very delicate thing to ask people to share if you're not going to take care of them after. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the book, but I, I feel like by nature of its, of its, of its title branding feels like a to the consumer, you see that at Barnes and Noble, it strikes your eye. Like, would, would you, would you see there's a, like, is there like a potential other version of this that's for corporate? Because it sounds like a lot of this is, is very applicable to people within that, that realm, but I wouldn't look at that and think, oh, that's a great corporate book to recommend. You wouldn't because when we sold it, we wanted to sell it to the people whose lives could change, even if they didn't hire me as a consultant, most people won't. Right. (laughs) So it is absolutely marketed toward a personal development group. It is secretly, I think they're, they're kind of leaning toward, they think millennial women will love it. I'm not even millennial, but whatever, that's fine. And you're right. A corporate audience won't pick it up necessarily and know right away that that's what this is. But that is actually where my actual living comes from, Mm -hmm. is doing the workshops and that kind of work. Uh, You're right. And I'm aware of that gap, by the way, that there's this Mm -hmm. book that's for a general audience and then there's this. But when I'm invited to speak, I make the connection for them. Whatever, whoever I'm speaking to, I in my keynotes, I'll say, here's what I talk about in this book, but here's how this matters to you. And I customize it for the person. So, but you're right. It's not going to be on a corporate shelf. Well, I'll put you on the spot with this. So if I were to take this and and recommend it 
to to a company would you can can you on the spot would you be able to tell me what what would the title be of the book if it were for corporate that i could say like that title that would get them interested same content same everything but it'd be a different title that but not use the word would, passion because I think passion, not use the word passion or can you we can use, use the word passion, but is there a title in there that specifically somebody at a corporation would hear if, if you were to have that exact same book, but a different title and they okay. would go, oh, okay. maybe I can use this with my team I or got my you. company, my division. I got you. It might be something that's a little bit more friendly to them, like repurpose your passion. But in the way I'm thinking about it is um, employ your passion uh, because every person, whether they're employed like W2 or 1099, they have to decide to, you don't go out and chase your passion like a wild goose chase. You employ it, you hire it, you bring it to the table. And by that, I mean your skills, your experience, your talent, all the things, not your favorite pie in the sky dream that you're going to be a professional hockey player. Mm -hmm. I mean, the kinds of things that you would use. So maybe it is that maybe it's, um, Something about like hiring or repositioning, something about give your, <laughs> I just, the problem is I don't even like the word passion. It just sounds so ooey gooey and like, love. yeah, I mean, the thing, the I would word change that comes, it. The, the thing, well, the, what comes to mind for me, cause I am doing exercises with trust with, with, and once you, once you crack through the, I, I, I believe it, trust usually comes up when it's not there. And that usually happens when somebody yeah. either doesn't fulfill something that they said they were going to do, or some type of expectation was dropped. But if that's still along, there's still deeper levels of trust that can happen with what you're talking about with more vulnerability. Um, but nobody wants to just like, let's be vulnerable, right? Like you don't, no, you don't no, 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 that, no. And right? that's, it's really important that you say that because, uh, I, because no one wants to come and be like, I have to write what it strikes terror into people's hearts. So actually a workshop I had been running was called unmute yourself. Of course was born during the lockdown era because everyone, you have to be like, uh, surely, surely you're mute, unmute yourself, surely, because no one can, you can't unmute them. They have to unmute themselves. And so it really started as something about helping people be heard. And how can you make sure you're heard in tricky zoom and other situations where it's hard to get a word in. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so I did that as a workshop and then I sold um, a, a combination keynote slash workshop called unmute your team. Let's hear from everyone. Because oh. that's what people say in the group, like, let's hear for everybody. And the problem that people told me was no one's saying anything. They're letting the leaders speak. And so it was really a big push on the leaders speak and the leaders often speak, but the leader's job is to listen. And we can't, at one, there was one awkward moment in the middle of that L'Oreal session. They were the highest ranking female employees at L'Oreal. And it came time to read the stories and there was a big long gap. And I said, you guys, I get paid the same whether you read or not. I said, but what I'm telling you is this, if you can't trust yourself here in this room where I've told you what the rules are and that you're safe, how are you going to do anything out there? How are you going to make the changes if you can't do it here? Because I provide an airtight container. I, I, there's no way you're going to be hurt in this room, but you could get hurt out there. So if you can't trust us here, what's, what's the issue? So I wow. use this for that too, but it's, it's big because most people are keeping themselves quiet. Right. I love that. Unmute yourself. The one I was going with was something to the line of, of deep teams. Um, you know, like, cause there's the deep work, Cal Newport's work where you, you really get a lot done that way and deep. Uh, I think it's a combination in a way of that deep work team, uh, term with, with going deeper that getting to know people on a deeper level and that connects people and the more connected you are, the more, right. you know, you're going to, but more important, work. I will add why the work. And I use the word work a lot because we're not going to go around the room. Let's all share stories about how we were hurt when we were young. Like we're not doing that. 
what I say is I give a prompt that is very safe and you can write about whatever. And I always say, don't throw yourself, don't crowd, crowd dive here. If you're not ready to share a very vulnerable story, you don't share it today. Do not use this as a chance to be like, well, if I say the worst thing, it'll be, no, you only write what you're ready to write about. But they write the thing and then they're not allowed to talk about it. They read it off the page. Now, I'm not part of their work a day projects, but this for now stands in for the work. So when they write and I give them 10, 15 minutes, maybe they're going to have a couple hundred words there and they're going to read it and we respond to the work. Well, the work in their regular day might be a presentation, might be a report, maybe anything else they do, but we're practicing with this work, which is very connected to them. But if you were to read Robert, I wouldn't say, oh, well, see what we know about Robert. He's really um, insecure. Like we don't talk about you. We talk about the work. And I say, the speaker in this scene said this, we separate the person from it because what makes us get hurt and scared when we're overly attached to the work? So mm. it's you, but it's separate from you. Mm. And we only talk about what's working in it. It never happens because we think that we're going to be smart and find flaws and fix things and make everyone better. But as Marcus Buckingham will say, we don't need feedback. We need attention to what we do best. And we so rarely give it, especially in corporate. So it's a really lovely sauna. It's like an emotional sauna that we can all step into and warm ourselves for a bit before we go back into our regular life. And it can have residual effects in the best possible way. Because what I say is how about for every person you have to talk to on your team, what if you didn't go, you know what, uh, Louise, you might wanna change this and you did it and I'm trying to help you. How about you only point out what's working, what people are doing well, 10 times. So that the one time you have something that you want them to fix, it's one in a ratio of 10 other things and they already feel you see them and hear them. You're not going to get somewhere if every time they see you coming, they see bad news coming. I love it. I love it. Well, I've already know people I want to recommend this to. This is, this is wonderful. Uh, really fantastic. I knew there was a, a reason I showed up today. <laughs> yes. So where, where, where do you like people to go to, to Amazon, to your site, your Instagram, like where, where I'm on all the things it's mm -hmm. really, and I'm the only one with my name. So it's easy to find. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can just go to terrychspeech.com, but if you are interested in the book, it's easier to remember this unfollowyourpassion.com. And mm -hmm. that is where you can learn about the book. If you want to be in on that, I'm having like a, you know, a series of bonuses for people who do that, but I'm everywhere. I'm even on TikTok now, as I said, so I would Very love to hear cool. Very cool. Very cool. Unfollowyourpassion.com. Terry, thanks so much for being on Culture Thank Hackers. Thank you.